This podcast is brought to you by Australia's LGBTQIA plus community media organisation, Joy. Keep Joy on air by becoming a member, a subscriber or donate. Head to joy.org.au. Joy, a diverse sound for a diverse community. You gotta see the baby. When are you gonna see the baby? Family matters. Hello and welcome. My name is Clayton Wimshurst. My guest host today is Joe Hurst. Hello, Joe. Hello, Clayton. Joe is the author of Gender Fairy and the new book, A House for Everyone. Did I you? am. Yes. Uh, <laughs> well, I didn't actually ask a question. How did the launch go? Because last time we spoke to you, you were getting ready for the launch. That's right. It was absolutely beautiful. I had a dream team speak, actually. I had Evie McDonald, young transgender girl, do a speech. I had Neville Zizen speak and Jacob Thomas, and they were absolutely amazing. Lots of kids came. It was beautiful. We had a ball. Eventually, you'll get to see video clips and photos of the launch. It was it was beautiful. It was a really special night. Thank you. Did you have to do a lot of autographing? Yeah, I had to sit there all night, and my son ended up asking me to autograph his hand. Oh, so that's that, sweet. That was pretty cute. Yeah, nice. Yeah, signed lots of books. It was great. So today, on today's show, we're going to be discussing the Australian standards of care and treatment for guide. Uh, guide, sorry, I'm just going to do that bit again. Discussing the Australian standards of care and treatment guidelines for trans and gender diverse children, co-authored by our guest Michelle Telfer. But first. We're going to play well, something we like to do on Family Matters is play Sesame Street songs. And this is Celebrities on Sesame Street. And this is Will I Am singing Who I Am, which kind of fits in with our theme today, I think. You're on Family Matters on Joy 94.9. You're with Clayton Wimshurst and special guest host, author Joe Hurst today. Uh, we're going to be talking to Michelle, Associate Professor Michelle Telfer, paediatrician and head of the Department of Adolescent Medicine. Uh, you're also the winner of Straight Ally of the Year at the Globe Awards uh, in 2017, so the last ones. So, congratulations. Yes. Thank you. Hello, Clayton. <laughs> Hi, Joe. Hi, Michelle. So, Michelle, can you quickly give us an overview of what your work involves? Yeah, so I'm, an, I'm a paediatrician and I specialise in adolescent medicine. And apart from running the Department of Adolescent Medicine at the Royal Children's Hospital. I'm also director of the Gender Service at the Royal Children's Hospital. And the Gender Service is the largest uh, multidisciplinary service for trans and gender diverse children and adolescents in Australia, and one of the largest in the world, actually, in terms of providing care for this group of young people. You're a bit of a dream interview for us at Family Matters. So this, I think, is the first time you've been on our show. So thank you so much for coming in to talk oh, about... Oh, you're welcome. My yeah, pleasure. Yeah, we've been I'm trying to interview you for a while. So. Oh, no, sorry. I can be a bit hard to catch sometimes. Elusive. Yeah. <laughs> and, Joe, you're here as well to help me out with the interview because uh, your knowledge on trans youth is probably a bit better than well, mine, I'd say. I'm very excited that Michelle's here to talk about these new guidelines. I think they're very, very exciting, especially for someone like me who's the parent of a young transgender child. And can I just say, Michelle's going to talk us, tell, tell us a bit about these guidelines, but what's really, really exciting is that quite recently I was thrilled to see them published in the Medical Journal of Australia, which is absolutely wonderful. But then what blew everyone away is they were published in one of the world's leading medical journals, The Lancet. And I think I nearly fell over backwards when I saw that. Congratulations, Michelle. You must have been absolutely thrilled. Yeah, thanks, Joe. So I probably should explain what The Lancet is because I have no idea. Yeah, I could probably put it into context a little bit. Sure. So 
We wrote the guidelines and they were available online uh, through the RCH website at the end of 2017. But we felt that to give them credibility and to get them to a, a wider audience across Australia and especially to, to doctors and other clinicians that we should have it peer-reviewed and published in respectful, res, um, in, a, in a journal that um, provides the publications with um, great credibility really. And so we submitted it to the Medical Journal of Australia. They had it peer-reviewed and they decided to publish it and that was published on the 18th of June. And then about 10 days after that, I was on call and heading into the children's store ward round, believe it or not, for the inpatient unit. And um, I was contacted by The Lancet. And The Lancet is um, one of the oldest and most prestigious medical journals in the world and um, comes from the UK and it's highly respected. And... I was nearly bowled over because what they'd said was that they'd seen it published, the guidelines published in the MJA. They'd reviewed it independently themselves and done some reading around the literature in this area. And they wanted to express their thoughts that it was the leading guideline currently in the world. And what they ended up doing is providing a headline that was essentially that gender-affirming care should be adopted, which is what our guideline purports. So that was really exciting, and I was I was bowled over too because it came out of the blue and we hadn't expected that kind of endorsement. That must be a huge career highlight for anyone, I think. Oh, definitely. And I think it's also very validating because when you work in this area, you do cop quite a lot of criticism and negativity from certain sections of the not just the general community but the medical community as well who can be very conservative and to see it published in such a a high-ranking medical journal provides that validation and says you know what there is enough medical evidence to support these guidelines and we should be putting it out there so you're going global straight out of the gate yeah, yeah, I know. It was, <laughs> it, it was not planned that way, but mm. it was a very pleasant surprise, I have to say. I think that goes to show just how necessary these guidelines were. Yeah, so the the World Professional Association for Transgender Health are writing a guideline, uh, their eighth version. So their initial version was published in the seven, 1970s. Wow. Yeah, and they've since published uh, seven versions. The last one that was published though was back in 2011 and the thing about those guidelines were that they were up to date at that time but trans medicines moved a very long way in seven years especially in the area of children and adolescents in terms of the knowledge that we have the collective experience but also the empirical research and what we found was that we weren't really following those guidelines because we knew that that it actually wasn't best care and all we did was um, gather the most up-to-date evidence gather the collective experience across Australia and then put it into writing I think that's something that I really love about these guidelines is that you did look at the most up-to-date research and evidence and that you did consult everyone who's working in this area in Australia basically Mm. Yeah, so that's right. Before we even started the first draft, I put out 
uh, an email to pretty much everyone I knew working in trans health across Australia and New Zealand as well and asked for people's opinions on certain issues and what direction we should go and also looking to see who wanted to contribute and um, we had a positive response with every state and territory who have clinicians working uh, coming on board and then once we had a first draft and we had something to show for that initial work we invited a children and adolescents who identify as trans or gender diverse and their parents to come in to read the first draft and to provide advice and consultation and that was really useful and some of the suggestions that were made really did change how we um, presented uh, the material and and I think also the terminology we really had to get right through consultation with community and then the next level of consultation was with organisations working um, with the trans community not just children, adolescents and parents but also organisations like Transgender Victoria and the Expert Advisory Committee that works with the Victorian Government as well. So there are lots of levels of consultation before we even wrote the second draft and then there was a third draft after that. So it was a lot of work um, but in the end it's been really worthwhile because what we've got is a very practical guideline. It's pretty easy to read, it's not very cumbersome and yet everyone's telling us it's really useful. Yeah, and I think too, uh, what you said before is it's very, very affirming, which is the way we see m- sort of um, health moving in the treatment of transgender children now. And I think uh, I, I like some of the things that you say is that children, young children, know what their gender is, that affirming treatment is what's best for children. And I think we're seeing the end of, of what we call the 80% desistance myth. Do you think that um, I'll explain? I'll explain a little bit. Uh, would you like to explain it, or, or will I? I can explain what the eighty percent. Sure, you go ahead, Joe. Yeah. So it started with with a man called Kenneth Saka, who was working in a clinic in Toronto, who's now I've, I've heard him called the father of conversion therapy for trans children recently. Oh, great! So he was working in a clinic which was working towards the aim of of making children not transgender, but he was working with children who weren't just transgender. It was. Any parent would bring their child along if they were playing a boy playing with dolls or a boy wearing a dress, for example. And, and his aim was to stop that happening. And he, his research was based on children who were trans or gender non-conforming. He counted them all as transgender in his research. And he said that in his research, he, that 80% of the children he worked with stopped identifying as transgender when they got older, whereas actually all the children he was working with weren't transgender in the first place. And also, he didn't actually know what was happening to a lot of those children long term because if they didn't return to his clinic, he just decided they weren't, tra- weren't identifying as transgender anymore, whereas we don't really know what was happening with those children. And there was a similar study with somebody called Steensmer as well, where he had the, a similar approach and, um, 
similar group of children and I think something like nearly 48% I think of children uh, didn't return to the clinic and he counted those children as desisting. So from this we get we get the 80%, 80% desistance myth that's used quite a lot by people who don't want to provide uh, children with gender affirming treatment they say wow they're going to grow out of it anyway but that research um, by most of the sort of medical world is now being seen as flawed uh, and not acceptable um, do, what would you have to say to anyone Michelle in the medical world who's still referring to that that research and that 80% desistance myth yeah I think um, I agree that there were major problems with that Research and the way they counted young people who were lost to follow up essentially as to sisters because we don't really know what happened to mm. those uh, young people when they grew up. And I, um, myself and my colleagues, we, we don't see that in our clinics. Um, for those who really have um, gender dysphoria in um, in in the sense that they are distressed about their gender, we were seeing the vast majority of them persisting into um, adolescence, and we haven't yet had the time to be doing the long term follow up studies. Although we have started that, there hasn't been enough time for us to mm. make any formal kind of announcement. But we are looking at um, persistence in our group as well rather than desistance <laughs> rather than desistance <laughs> yeah. yes and also i think times have changed a lot and we are now taking an approach where we listen to the child and we listen to the adolescents and we hear what they're saying and support them so that they feel comfortable in identifying um how they how they feel they are and this wasn't the case if you go back 20 odd years ago when Zucker first uh, started studying this. So really, if you're in a in an environment that's affirming and supportive, these young people are not afraid to tell you how they feel about themselves and how they identify, and you get a much more accurate picture of gender identity over time. And we're hoping to capture that as the years pass Um and our current experience is that it is the vast majority who will uh, persist, um, and and that does contrast significantly with the older studies that were done. And I think the the difference is that you're looking at it as though gender diversity is just a natural part of being human, whereas you, um, perhaps the people who were doing this research were looking to cure it. And I think there's a big difference there. Yes, absolutely. I, I think, um, and I don't think we can put all the previous studies looking at outcomes into one basket because they're all quite different. Um, but there certainly was a pathologizing element to it, and 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 even the the terms persistence and desistance are pretty awful terms. They are yeah. very awful. Yeah. Um, they sound very clinical. Oh, they're very <laughs> clinical. And really, I mean, we all change over time um, yeah. in all sorts of ways. And I think it, it really does make one sound right and one sound wrong. And I think that's, that's always going to be problematic. Mm. And so we're trying to look at things in a more nuanced way, in a more... 
um, diverse way in terms of change over time. But I think definitely the the biggest difference for our guideline as to, as compared to previous ones is that not only have we involved children in writing the guideline and their parents, but we also have really tried to listen to what they're telling us about how they'd like to be cared for. And I think, too, one of the really important things is, is looking at the child's needs right now, at this point in time, which which I think that you do. I think it's not about predicting how the child's going to be in the future. It's not as important as looking as looking at well, what's good for this child's mental health right now at this point in time. Yeah, and some of the the criticisms of providing care to gender diverse children in the past have been around the potential risk of them deciding that that they they don't identify as trans in the future. And we know that that rate um, of regret is really small. And there's a recent study that's come out of Amsterdam that goes back looking at all the patients from the 1970s. So they have hundreds and hundreds of patients, actually thousands, I think it's 6,000 patients wow. mm. that they've gone back. And they quote regret rates of between 0.4 and 0.6%. That is very low. Very, very low. Mm. And some of the people who regretted their medical intervention didn't necessarily change their gender and regret it. What they regret was the way they were treated by society once Mm. they had transitioned and they may have lost family or friends and um, felt that their life was worse um, for having done uh, gone through that process. So when when we are criticised um, from people who, or by people who don't really understand what we're doing, um, they'll often say, as, as you mentioned, Joe, that what if these kids change their mind? And we, we can answer that, that that risk is low. But also what we have to put into that equation is what happens to all the kids who do have um, a gender identity if we're not treating them. And we know that not providing treatment has the result of uh, increasing depression, increasing anxiety, high rates of self-harm and suicide. So on the balance of things, the benefits of treating far outweigh the risks. Yeah, we've seen the Trans Pathways results last year that were quite frightening and extremely distressing that back that up. Mm. I think there's a lot more to discuss on that. We just need to go and pay our bills. So you are listening to Family Matters on Joy 94.9. You are with Joe Hurst, a special guest host for today, and myself, Clayton Wimshurst, and we're chatting with Michelle Telfer about the guidelines around transgender and adolescent health. I probably should have just read the title properly. But, <laughs> so. Australian Standards of Care and Treatment Guidelines for Trans and Gender Diverse Children and Adolescents. That's it's quite a mouthful. It, it is. is hard to remember. Yeah. You must be really good at saying that oh, by I've now. I've written it down many times, yeah. yeah. don't you worry. I just think we should very quickly acknowledge your co-authors on this because you, you're not the only author here. So. No, absolutely You're not. the main author though, I think. Can you run yeah. those off the top of your head? Or you? <laughs> absolutely. <laughs> yeah. um, so the the four main authors myself there was uh, Ken Pang, Carmen Pace, and Michelle Tollett, who are all part of the RCH Gender Service and and my wonderful colleagues. Contributing though also to this, as I mentioned, um, were many clinicians from across Australia. 
we have a team of approximately 16 with the RCH Gender Service. So everyone played a role in creating these guidelines. And then there are approximately 50 other clinicians from across the country in New Zealand who um, also contributed to writing the guidelines. So it's a pretty extensive involvement. It's not like you've just gone written something and thrown it at people. Like, oh, yeah. absolutely. <laughs> it, it, took, it took a long time. Um, but the, the great... The great thing about having people from across Australia involved in writing it is that we've got a national consensus on how trans kids should be cared for. And it was surprisingly easy for us to do that. Um, Often in other countries and other jurisdictions, there's a lot of um, doing and froing. There's some differences of opinion um, on various um, medical interventions and things but what we've got in Australia is a really cohesive group of now experts with increasing experience in this area and we come with without that long history that has been I think problematic in um, in Canada the US and and some parts of Europe so and I think what we see in Australia is some extremely dedicated professionals like yourself but not every state has a gender service unfortunately and I was I was hearing an incredibly sad story from a mother in South Australia recently uh, where her child has really suffered because there's no gender service and her child was 13 when they were first referred and on a long waiting list didn't get there in time for puberty blockers that being on the waiting list meant that they missed out which was really sad then um, at 14 there were professionals there uh, who could see this child was very much in need of some sort of help uh, unfortunately, them, the child's almost 15, and while the endocrinologist and the psychiatrist are saying, yes, this child, especially with these new guidelines, needs needs hormones, they don't have the backing of the hospital that they work for to give those hormones. This child's now had two suicide attempts and um, has developed severe anorexia. And at the last suicide attempt, the endocrinologist is by the side of the bed just sobbing, sobbing with the child and the mother, just saying, look, I really wish I could help you and, and my hands are just tied. I just think that's such a sad situation that you know, in Melbourne, we're so privileged to have a gender service and there are other states, you know, Queensland and Western Australia who have these gender services and there are other children, you know, literally at risk of death because this isn't provided. And this just isn't in Australia either. I mean, this is around, this, is, this can be a problem around the world as well. It's really quite devastating. Yeah, one of the differences between what we've written as a guideline and the previous ones from the World Professional Association of Trans Health is that our guideline takes a very individualistic approach where we recognise that everyone has different circumstances, has a different presentation, and we can respond to that. Uh, and we do provide guidelines that are safe and medically appropriate but where we are listening and flexible in how we apply our medical knowledge and I think that that can be really difficult for medical systems Um, and we know that best care is provided in this way and we are very lucky in Victoria because we've had a, a supportive government who have provided us with the resources to be able to provide this care 
and which is now, as you mentioned, um, considered gold standard really um, internationally. So it would be great if we could have the same resources across the country um, and I would, yes, implore other states as well to um, hmm. to do what they can do. And I know there's nothing you can do about that, uh, but I just think it's really sad that there's someone there stopping a child from getting life-saving treatment and that uh, uh, I think that's actually really dangerous and that's happening in parts of Australia and it's really sad and it's happening overseas as well. A lot of people seem to have the answer where a child is identifying as being trans. Oh, just tell them not to be. And that seems to be how they're going to solve the issue. Whereas we've got mm. systems like this that have much more extensive and understand the issues. Mm. And, yeah. and we know now from our Trans Pathways report too that, you know, one in two children will attempt suicide and many will succeed. And this is why. It's not, it's not because they're transgender, it's because of either the way society see them or they're not getting the help that they need. And, and there's no need for that. We, you've gone global, but who was your actual intended audience for this document? It was initially written for clinicians across Australia, so aiming at not only general practitioners, but paediatricians, psychologists, social workers, and so forth, really to have a guideline that people could just look up on the internet and find out what their role might be in providing this care and how they might go about it. And so the guideline outlines some general approaches, some terminology to use that gender affirming, um, and then goes right to the specifics of what dose of hormones to use if you're an, a, a paediatrician or an endocrinologist and you're at that level of competence um, with this population. And... It's really interesting to see that uh, the guidelines gone much broader than clinicians um, and I've had some interest from, from schools and from other educational facilities to say, you know, can we, can we adopt some of these um, recommendations? And it's mostly in terms of the, the general out, outlining of, of um affirming care. I was so pleased to see that you had included kindergartens and early childhood care in there because I know I'm contacted all the time by kindergarten teachers and childcare centres to, to say, look, we've got a, a gender non-conforming or a transgender child, what do we do? I know parents of gender diverse children go out and talk to kinders all the time and, and people are surprised by this but they're there. Trans kids can be very young and it was great to see that affirmed in those guidelines and also the need for education because because if you're having a child make a social transition in kinder or school, you kind of need to explain that. Yeah, and it's a really important time when kids are developing a, a sense of where they fit in the world. So I think early childhood experiences are really important to how they relate to other people. And many kindergarten teachers are interested in hearing how they might support these young children. And I think the most important thing for us is to say, look, we've reviewed all the evidence that there is and there's absolutely no harm and there are potential benefits that's in right. supporting these kids. And that's been important. That's, Some, uh, sorry, I was just going to say, it's great for all children to learn about diversity as well and how they might support their friends and other people that they might meet growing up as well, other adults that might meet as well as children. I think a lot of the bullying that happens at school and and even within kindergartens really relates to people not understanding and hopefully 
as we provide this education in kindergartens and schools, um, there is greater understanding and, and less discrimination, bullying and, and harm that comes from that. Also, did I tell you that Michelle wrote the forward to the Gender Fairy? And Michelle was one of my main consultants when I wrote the Gender Fairy as well. Uh, which was absolutely wonderful. And I remember when I was writing one particular page, um, I think I said something like, oh, yes, there are other children like you out there. And Michelle said, mm, I think you should change it to there are lots of other children like you out there. And you told me the statistics about how many transgender children are actually out there in our schools. Yeah, the best figures we have is about 1.2%, uh, which when you think about it, in most most Australian schools, most average size schools, you're going to have a few kids who identify as trans and gender diverse. Um, my school has a thousand kids, so that's a decent that's a number lot. of kids. Yeah, that's a lot. <laughs> so, yeah, <laughs> that's right. Mm-hmm. I when I've had a bit of a read of the guidelines, and what I really took from it, and tell me if I got the wrong idea, um, was that treatment really needs to be individualised. So it's not so much about this is how you treat all trans kids; it's about this is what you can do to make individually trans lives better. Absolutely. So you've you've picked up exactly what the Lancet did. Is that, um, <laughs> so you've done really well. Oh, great! Thank yeah. you. <laughs> there are two main differences yeah. from other guidelines. One is um, is is the individualised nature of what we recommend, and the second is around the. Um, the affirmative care in terms of social transition being child-led. So that, again, goes back to listening to the child and allowing the child to speak and to be heard in how they want to be addressed in terms of their, their name, their pronouns and their their attire, um, whether that be how they want to dress for kindergarten or school or what have you. And that's what the evidence is suggesting and we're we're just the first people to put it out there in this guideline. And a very user-friendly guideline. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> there was also something I was really pleased to see in there, and that's that you acknowledged that there are a lot of children and, and I guess adults who are on the autism spectrum and also transgender, and that needs to be treated with respect. Yes, absolutely. So our experience is that of the... Uh, children and adolescents referred to our service. Approximately 30% also have autism traits and they tend to be high-functioning young people with autism. So they have um, an IQ in the in the normal range. They're very intelligent kids, but they often have difficulties in terms of their social um, um, social capabilities and, and um, communication abilities and we don't feel that having autism traits should prevent anyone from receiving good care um it just may mean that um, assessments take the autism traits into account when we're trying to find out what those young people are trying to tell us because sometimes they find it more difficult. Sometimes, actually, they find it much easier. Yeah, I was going to say, sometimes <laughs> they just tell you exactly what you want to know. Yeah. Just, yeah. They do, and that can um, be really endearing, actually, when they tell you exactly what they think, not only of themselves but of, of us <laughs> um, and the hospital and, and so forth. And... Um, 
they can be really fun young people to work with, um, as well as sometimes being a bit challenging. So I absolutely second that. <laughs> so, <laughs> it was definitely some of my favourite students to work with, uh, students yep, with autism. They're same, just same. different world and getting to experience that for a little while is fantastic. Yeah, I agree. You are listening to Family Matters. We are chatting with Associate Professor Michelle Telfer on the... Okay, I'm going to read it this time. Australian Standards of Care and Treatment Guidelines for Trans and Gender Diverse Children and Adolescents. We are chatting with Michelle Telfer, Associate Professor from the Royal Children's Hospital. Did I get that right? Absolutely. Okay, well awesome. done. <laughs> thanks. Um, and my guest host today is Joe Hurst. Joe, thanks so much for co-hosting with me. Oh, thank you for having me. Oh, anytime. <laughs> uh, so, how do you get referred to your service within the gender clinic? I mean, yeah. Well, the gender service is um, one of the hospital's many clinics, mm-hmm. so we re- require a referral from a general practitioner, and. That allows us um, to go through the usual systems for the hospital. And so if anyone wants to come and see us, they literally can go to their GP. There is a referral um, page on our website that the GPs can fill out and send through to us. Um, or they can just write a few lines saying, please see such and such. So yep. it's pretty easy, to be honest. So if a GP doesn't have a lot of knowledge around trans health or anything, they, it's not going to be difficult for them. They can just... No, we get a lot of referrals that say things like, um, dear RCH Gender Service, um, this person would like to come and see you, please make a time. And that's okay with us. Yep, that's enough. And that's enough. Mm -hmm. Uh, um, It it is helpful to have more information, but um, we often know that parents can find it really difficult to bring this up with their general practitioner or that um, one parent might be on board and the other not being on board Mm -hmm. and they haven't been able to talk at great length to the GP about it. And um, so we're happy to 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 take any yeah anyone who has a referral really mm. what's the waiting time like at the moment so we have approximately 250 to 270 referrals each year wow yeah mm. so it's it's pretty tricky to stay on top of it to be mm. honest um, because everyone who comes into our service we want to provide really good care we have had to restructure our clinical processes to ensure that people aren't on a waiting list for a long time. And um, what's been interesting, actually, is we've put in a new layer of support so that within four months of a referral coming in, um, young people, so those who are over eight years of age, um, who, who were the ones that were waiting a long time before, often, um, well, the wait time two years ago was more than 14 months. Mm, that's a fantastic that, improvement. So. Yeah, so from 14 months to four months is a great improvement. And we, the other thing that we discovered really for, for those on the waiting list is that we were spending a lot of time on the phone providing, um, uh, providing advice and linking them into services within the community. And we thought we could do this much more efficiently if we actually brought the family in early on, found out what their needs were, and then, um, firstly, for those who urgently did need medical interventions, such as puberty blockers and so forth, we could get them into the clinic much more quickly. And for those who um, who were past puberty or who, who weren't going to need that urgent medical intervention, we could link them in with community services. And in doing so, by the time they do see the paediatrician's 
psychologists and psychiatrists. Um, the family have often linked in with good services. They've often um, worked through some of the difficulties within the family dynamics um, with acceptance and um, coming to terms with um, some of the differences that may exist within the family in terms of um, their feelings about transitioning. And um, by the time they came to see the multidisciplinary clinic where we were making medical decisions, we were much more efficient. So this initial clinic done at four months is something we've nicknamed SNAC, which is Single (laughs) Session Nurse Assessment Clinic. And our clinical nurse consultant does some of those appointments, but also our junior doctors in our team do the other ones. And um, we've just done an evaluation of this snack clinic and it was really helpful actually so we had a, a qualitative and a quantitative element of the evaluation it was done quite um, thoroughly and the just looking at um, the the young person and the parents before and after this clinic um, we saw reduced rates of anxiety and depression um, as well as parents reporting that they felt um, more supported and um, had enabled their children to socially transition before that even come in to the main aspects of the service. Um, so that's been great. So if a child, a parent has a child who is beginning to show signs that they might be uh, wanting to transition, what would you recommend they do? Always I say the most important thing is just listen to your child. If they're trying to tell you something, um, then we should be listening to them. And it's not easy for children to talk to their parents about these things. I think it's easier for younger kids who aren't so aware of the stigma of discrimination, or depending on the environment at home. If you're in an open, supportive family environment, I think young children find it a little bit easier, but not always. And... Um, I would just say to listen and to support them. And if there's distress, then come and see us mm-hmm. and we'll That's help out. really good advice because it is so difficult for kids. By the time they've come to you, they've usually thought about it so much. Mm. And it is really hard. And if there's distress, yeah, you need to go and see someone. You need to book in as soon as possible. And a really good idea is to go see a parent support group as well. And, and the amount of support that you'll get from someone like parents of gender diverse children or a parent peer parent support group is incredible. Just to be able to talk to other people who've gone through the same thing and they'll help you link up to all sorts of things, whether it's the right kind of undies for your child, the most bizarre advice you could ever, ever not, not ever have imagined yourself wanting to ask another parent for. It's there. Yeah, I think with the adolescents especially, some of the young people have thought about it for years and years, have come out to their friends, they might have even told someone at school, but it's often most difficult to talk to their parents. And when they do finally disclose it to their parents, they're at a stage where they really want their parents to support some intervention. And it's very difficult situation because the parents feel like it's a very sudden phenomenon and that suddenly they need to support their child in in a situation that they're not ready for so we have this disconnect between the young person and their parents and we often see with time that the parents are certainly able to um to see where the young person is coming from and may look back in retrospect at 
at their childhood and and pick up on things that they hadn't really noticed um, in terms of signs, I guess, of their child's gender diversity. Um, but we can assist with that um, at, at the gender service. We can help parents to understand um, as well as allowing a safe space where people can talk about their feelings knowing that they're not going to be judged or criticised and that can be really important too because sometimes for some families a space like that is actually very hard to find. Mm. It's really, really important that you know that everybody's journey is different and when it comes as a shock to, to any parent, what they need is lack of judgment and somewhere that they can really just let it all out with no judgment away from their children where it's not hurting their children. And everybody has questions about this. Like, it's if you new and new to this, you actually you need to just go have an opportunity to ask those questions. Mm, exactly, nothing wrong with asking mm. questions as long as they're respectful. Like, absolutely. Yeah. Mm, mm. So, I think like family and peers are really great. Oh, it's inc- it's incredible having that safe space to be able to ask questions and not be judged and say I don't understand this or I feel terrible or I'm what did grieving I the loss of my child. Mm. What did I do wrong? I'm not right with this. I don't think this is right. All of those things in a safe space because it takes it can be like it can be like grieving for some parents it really can be and that, i can understand that like it's it's a big change for everybody my friend's uh kid uh is transitioning and um the biggest problem with her at the moment is getting her to sit down to urinate uh, because um yeah she's yep. just like well it's so much easier to stand up though and so you know those sort of those little oh, things there's all are, sorts of things yeah, like that yeah yeah there's yeah. there's all these little things that you can go and talk to family about things like that or whatever else it's so. not like you can go and talk to your girlfriends you can't talk to your family it's 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 a really sort of niche thing <laughs> yeah yeah i think parents sometimes feel blamed or they um they worry that they may have done something to um and it seems bizarre really to think that you could do something to make your child trans um seems bizarre to me because i know that there's absolutely no evidence for that but we hear it a lot parents mums especially do blame themselves for everything so it's it's a really common thing yeah it is and when we relay those fears i think there's often um relief that that comes with that um so that's an important aspect too knowing that this isn't necessarily to do with anything that anyone's done it's just how it is and how the world is and it's okay that's very good advice all right we're going to um, come back shortly to talk to michelle to have some final questions to wrap up the hour you're on family matters on joy 94.9 you're with Clayton Wimshurst and special guest host, author, Joe Hurst, talking to Associate Professor Michelle Telfer. Michelle, we've heard so much about all the care you provide. What about research? Do you do research as well? We do, actually. We've started um, a longitudinal cohort study that we've named Trans20. This is an optimistically named research project because we're hoping that we can keep it going for 20 years, um, which is all dependent on funding, really. Um, But we started this 18 months ago, and what we're doing is measuring young people's mental health, physical health, their family, school functioning, as well as other things like bullying and coping, resilient skills and so forth. We're measuring that at the time that they, um, just before they come in to see us, and then over various periods um, 
at with the the largest interval being every 12 months until they go into adulthood and what we're hoping to find out from trans 20 is what is the best care that provides the best outcomes for these young people in reaching adulthood and maximizing their potential in terms of their education their vocation and their mental and physical health so there's a um it's a big study so in the first year um we had and it's entwined with the clinical work so it's all relevant to the care we provide which is an important aspect of it and the first year we had 300 young people and 300 parents complete the questionnaires which is no mean feat because the questionnaires mm. take about an hour oh, each wow. <laughs> so that was pretty impressive and we were thrilled with that uptake and many families tell us that they're aware that um, we need research to improve care, so they're happy to contribute, and that's fantastic. We're very grateful for that. Um, and we're just now doing our first year follow-up um, questionnaires, which go out through um, an online link. Um, and as I said, we're hoping that we can keep following these young people right through to adulthood. That's going to be a big call to follow. That's a lot of people to follow, but hopefully it works out because that will give you amazing information over an extended period. Yeah, if we were thinking that we would recruit the cohort over three years, so we will have somewhere between 750 and 1,000 young people, which would make it the largest study of its kind internationally. There are other longitudinal cohort studies that have been started overseas, um, one of them in, in America, but what makes our Trans20 project, I think, so uh, relevant and hopefully so useful is that all of our young people are following a, a treatment guideline that is outlined in the standards of care. So they're all getting the same quality of care, um, whereas in the States they've, um, they're recruiting young people from various different services who all treat these young people in different ways so some of these services for example only have a pediatrician others only have mental health um, clinicians whereas what we're providing is this individualistic multidisciplinary service and measuring things that way so i think we can come to some really strong conclusions from this research that others won't be able to and i have to um, thank the Royal Children's Hospital Foundation who provided the initial funding to get it off the ground and have put in another three years of funding now so that we're funded for the first four years, which is fabulous. That's, That's great. Fantastic. Yeah. Yeah. And the Murdoch Children's Research Institute has also assisted us in um, building the team which is going to be, which is being led uh, by Ken Pang, Michelle Tollett, and Carmen Pace, who are my yeah. co-authors. They're wonderful individuals. <laughs> Thanks, Joe. Yeah, so Ken's the the head of our research pro- program, and um, he's pretty amazing. He is. Yeah. <laughs> he's very brainy, much more brainy than I am, which <laughs> is fortunate. Um, and uh, yeah, I can't wait to see how things pan out as the years go past and give us a huge amount of data um, that we'll be able to base future guidelines on. Great. So how often do you anticipate having to update this guideline? <laughs> oh, after just getting this one out, I can't. <laughs> I'm not all that keen that. to start again. <laughs> yeah. um, but hopefully as uh, the evidence um, progresses, 
we can make small but significant updates over time. I think writing the first one mm. is the hardest. Yeah. Um, so now that that's there, we can build on it. You can tweak on it, tweak as it's needed, I guess, can't you? Yeah, yeah. It's going to be easier from this point on. I think it would be really interesting to read the uh, 1970s version and uh, compare them with the uh, Might be a bit advice. Scary, yeah, yeah, I think so. Um, yeah. Do you expect uh, the new WPATH guidelines coming out to reflect? this document yeah, at all? it's really it's interesting. interesting question, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, it is interesting. So WPATH, of course, have to encompass the views internationally, which vary um, and are often contradictory. And I think this is where Australia has the advantage in terms of being a strong collective um, that we can come together in peace and harmony and put together our best efforts. I think it's much more difficult at an international level. But they you know, they, they have seven versions behind them um, and they have lots of expertise and um, I'll be really keen to see um, what the outcome is. Mm-hmm. They, we were expecting Stands of Care version 8 to be out soon. But um, I'm not sure exactly when it, when it's going to come. Believe 2020. Yeah, I suspect that's probably going to be about that um, about the timing there because it's 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 hard to get everyone together um, and it's hard to I think put recommendations across that are succinct and um, and and that's where it's going to be difficult for WPATH. We'll all wait and see, and hopefully in the meantime, they can have a look at these guidelines overseas. Hopefully more than have a look. Take them to heart. That's right. We will share these guidelines through our Facebook and through part of the podcast as well. So do you have anywhere you want to point anybody to find them right now? Yeah, you can um, just Google RCH Gender Service, Mm -hmm. and up pops our webpage with a gorgeous video actually of young people talking about themselves and then there's a link um, to the guideline just under that. Well, RCH Gender Service is a lot easier than trying to type out the title, I think, so that's good. Yeah, well, you can try <laughs> yeah. through the Lancet. Just look at the Lancet. Yeah. <laughs> thanks for the plug. Michelle, thank you so much for joining us today. You're welcome. Thanks be, for having me. I, I really look forward to seeing what people can do with these guidelines. So, And Joe, thank you so much for co-hosting with me today. Thank you for having me. Joe's books are out now, um, Gender Fairy and uh, House for Everybody. That's right. Everyone or everybody? Everyone, and okay. it's everywhere. I did get it <laughs> slightly wrong, but it was close. Uh, <laughs> you've been listening to Family Matters. I am Clayton Wimshurst. Have a lovely evening. Thanks for listening to another Joy podcast, brought to you by Australia's LGBTQIA plus community media organisation, Joy. Help us keep Joy on air. Head to joy.org.au. Joy, a diverse sound for a diverse community.